0: Responsible Statecraft has a piece entitled, U.S.-led naval escort to break Russian blockade could risk wider war. Calls for a, quote-unquote, coalition of the willing to establish a maritime corridor are designed to obfuscate the dangers that it will create. What's really at stake here? For insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst Mark Schloboda, as always, Mark, welcome back.
1: Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical
0: hour. This is another example of a responsible statecraft article that you really have to pay attention to. It opens since Russia invaded Ukraine in February. Relatively few in the Western commentariat have been willing to call for the United States to engage in direct war against Moscow. The reasons for this caution are obvious. Russia is a nuclear state and has a military that its recent underperformance, notwithstanding, is still vastly more formidable than any recent target of U.S. military convention. Despite this incredibly biased description, in my opinion, the point is there are those in the Western commentariat calling for a naval intervention Under the pretext of humanitarian intervention, Mark Schloboda, your thoughts.
1: Okay, so uh, first of all, I think this article is actually deficient
0: in a number of areas. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Um, First of all, it doesn't mention that there is no Russian blockade of grain, (laughs) right? I mean, it it does not exist. It is as real as the ghost of Kiev or the martyred ghosts of Snake Island or the bombing of (laughs) Babayar or Chernobyl, right? It it, It doesn't exist, right? There is a blockade of sorts by the Kiev regime. Of its ports in Odessa and the coast there with mines. They have mined mined their (laughs) own ports. They've mined them, right? You can't deny that. They're there. It has been admitted to. But then they talk about a de facto Russian blockade. No Russian warship has interdicted or stopped the transit of any grain ship out of Ukraine. Because there hasn't been any. There's some... Dozens of foreign ships still stuck in Odessa port because they were there when when uh, you know the Kiev regime declared martial law at the start of the intervention and mined their port. They can't get out, and this is significant, right? These mines, first of all, they're not in great condition. Some of them have already broken away and ended up blowing up on beaches, killing people in Ukraine and 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 presenting dangers as far as away as Turkey. It will be a major operation to clear these. Who's going to do it? Give, can't do it. They don't have a navy capable of it, right? Um, um,
0: but wait a minute, Mark. Didn't Russia a, a month or maybe two months ago? Didn't they ask yes. that the port be at least some channels be demined? They they have request
1: They have offered a humanitarian corridor for grain uh, mm-hmm. imports. They uh, they it took them a month. To demine the port at Mariupol, they released, they got the foreign ships out of there. Grain shipments from Zaporozhye, from from southern Ukraine, uh, under uh, you know um, uh, you know liberated from the Kiev regime, they're a Kherson, they're already exporting grain out of there, right? Um, out of Mariupol, they're, Russia is doing everything reasonable uh to facilitate grain but the kib regime says they've been perfectly clear they've actually said before until they get security guarantees meaning until the war ends they will they will not export grain uh out of their ports it's them that is holding them blackmail again there has been russia has interdicted no ships and has offered to facilitate a humanitarian corridor um, second of all There are limits to the amount of foreign warships that can enter the Black Sea, according to the Montreux Convention. There are very complicated rules regarding the tonnage, how many foreign ships are allowed in at a time, how many times can make the passage. They have to provide 15 days advance notice to Turkey. All right. um, It it would be practically impossible for the U.S. to – for the West to assemble a real flotilla, right, of of any substance to go into the Black Sea, right? It's actually very hard. Second of all, if – They did. And let's let's say the mines magically disappeared and Russia really was blockading Ukraine's ports and they entered a conflict zone, which Russia has closed to foreign uh, to foreign traffic, to any type of uh, foreign military traffic like the U.S. did with the uh, Persian Gulf uh, during their uh, the, the near Iraq during the their invasion and occupation of Iraq it's the same exact same uh, you know procedure the, the if they did that Russia would su- have such complete superiority in the Black Sea just because of their um, very effective air defense systems, multiple S400 batteries, S300 batteries in Crimea and elsewhere. They would have complete dominance over over the Black Sea. They have um, anti ship missiles, um, you know, uh, by the Fton, you know, <laughs> around the area. Right They're, they it would be suicide when you take a look. Uh, so that that is another reason. That this has not uh, happened. There is no blockade, the, the, Mon- the Montreux Convention, and the, the military deficit that uh, any Western flotilla would find themselves in if it actually down came down to a combat. When you take a look at the list of people that are proposing this, Lithuania's foreign minister, uh, former U- Admiral James Stevridis Wesley Clark, Jack Keane, all right, uh, mm-hmm. these people are warmongers. These are neocon warmongers who, as they are, have been Russophobes advocating war with Russia for years. They want the West to attack Russia directly. That's why they're putting this forward, right? This is what it's all about. It's not about grain. It's not about anything. They're they 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 were the same type of people that put forward the idea of a no-fly zone. Luckily, Western, uh, particularly at least American, military leaders, admirals, will, will never allow for this because they realize that it would probably end, first of all, in their ships being sunk and then probably in a nuclear war soon after that. It's not going to happen. This is just noise from neocon warmongers. And the
2: worst part of it is… It's absurd because, as you said, hey, let's talk about how there is we can, no blockade. yeah, stop a blockade that doesn't exist. It, look, exist. if the Russians said, you know what, right on through you go, no problem, you have safe passage, go right through with your warships and head up to— Come on, I'm gonna tell you that much. I, 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 tell you what,
1: I think it's a great idea. I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's call, let's let's call Stavridis up, and, and 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 make it happen. Exactly. <laughs> Here's an interesting.
2: <laughs> Russia halts transit of Kazakh oil to Europe supply via a major Caspian pipeline has been stopped due to technical violations, according to the news agency Sputnik. Hmm. Another instance of technical violations causing Europe to get less oil. Mark Sloboda.
1: Imagine that. That's coming just on the heels of Russia having technical problems with Nord Stream 1 decreasing the gas flow to Germany and some other states by 60 percent because, uh, Germany's Siemens, uh, can't get a, uh, um, uh, a, a pump spinning turbines, uh, Back from Canada where they were due to be repaired and Russia says, well, because of sanctions and Russia says, well, you can't get those back. We can't pump any gas or we can't pump enough gas anyway. So, I mean, obviously, this is Russia's uh, uh, fighting back, right? They're using pretexts. Uh, Technically, they may be legal, legitimate pretext in that I have no doubt that there are probably some oil spills that they can find that if they strictly interpret the laws, they can find a pretext uh, for stopping the flow of oil from there. But, you know, I mean, again, you know, uh, we've we've heard from Western commentators start screaming that Russia is weaponizing energy. I'm like, are you serious? You have weaponized your entire economies in an existential economic war to, uh, you know, make the Russian people suffer and. You've weaponized your control of the global financial system, putting the legitimacy of the global financial system at at a a severe crisis moment, Uh, uh, you know, with the idea that you can steal hundreds of billions of dollars and prevent financial transactions and everything. And you want to complain about Russia using its own economy to to fight back? I mean, get over yourself.
0: (laughs) another responsible statecraft piece and and I wanted with you being an international relations and security analyst I really wanted to get your take on this piece responsible statecraft again folks you you got to you got to read it with three pairs of glasses a us security alliance in the middle east is unjustified there is no legitimate case for washington making new security commitments and assuming additional costs on behalf of saudi arabia And Israel Uh, your thoughts on Joe Biden's trip to the Middle East he says he's not going there to meet Mohammed bin Salman but I think I will see him at a meeting that we're both going to go to Mark Sloboda yeah
1: I mean of course the US does have very strong existing military ties there Um, the, the US has some of its largest military bases there in the Middle East uh uh qatar is the home of centcom right mm-hmm. the the largest uh, us military base uh, uh for the regions uh, we, uh you've got um uh, also uh in the united arab emirates uh and kuwait you've got significant us military forces there um you've seen us military forces and air defense systems deployed in saudi arabia for the first time in the last decade i mean there's already serious uh, military ties there. But I mean, if there was, you know, any promotion of an idea of a Middle East NATO, it would be an anti-Iranian military line. I mean, that would be the purpose of it. But it's certainly not going to happen right now because the relationships between Saudi Arabia and the Biden administration um, over uh, the Biden administration's Actually, admirable recognizing, uh, you know, uh, the crimes of their current crown prince and Mm -hmm. and not exactly. But um, that right now. Uh, that you know that sticking to principle on this one thing of all things, I'm not quite sure why, but has resulted in severe problems for the U.S. and the current situation. Saudi Arabia is refusing to pump any more oil. They've talked about joining BRICS. Uh, they they laugh at the idea of cooperating in, against sanctions with Russia. Um, all of this has has been going on and have has really. Put a damper on on you know uh, the, the U.S.'s ability to expand these economic sanctions against Russia outside of the West uh, when they can't even get the Middle East, the Gulf Cooperation Council countries to play along, and and that relationship with Saudi Arabia. So if there ever was going to be a uh, promotion of an idea of a Middle East NATO. And I'm not sure that the Middle East countries actually want the US having any more military leverage over them than they already do. I certainly think that, uh, that uh, Mohammed bin Salman doesn't want that right now. Um, it, it's not going to happen under the Biden administration if it was ever going to happen.
0: So we have just 45 seconds left. So Joe Biden is going over there with hat in hand. What does he come back with other than an empty hat?
1: I, I'm. i Maybe he could get a hat that says "I survived meeting with Mohammed at Vinsamman." Unlike Kasagi. Oh. Uh, oh. I mean that. Okay.
0: He could get a T-shirt. <laughs> He'll get a T-shirt. Okay. Yeah, a T-shirt. A T-shirt. <laughs> Mark Schlabota, as always. Thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciated. He might not even come back with his hat. Uh, we look forward <laughs> to having you back. But come back with his head. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Mark.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: The People's Dispatch has a piece entitled, EU Economies Are Down on Their Knees. Welcome to the European Union's Sanctions from Hell. Won't Europeans have the common intelligence to realize that they've been had? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. She's the editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents, Margaret Kimberly. As always, Margaret, welcome back. Thank you. So the piece opens on July 1 at the White House, President Biden made a startling disclosure that, quote, the idea we're going to be able to click a switch, bring down the cost of gasoline, is not likely in the near term, end quote. Margaret, I have two responses. One is, uh, like duh. And the other is, no stuff, Sherlock. Uh, your thoughts, Margaret Kimberly?
3: Well, I'm just laughing. Uh, I, I have to tell you, I mean, it's still a very dangerous moment. I don't mean to make light of it. But, well, I do mean to make light <laughs> of it. <This> is, uh, <laughs> uh, the idea that they could make up, they, that Europe depended on Russian natu- nat- natural gas and thought that they could replace it somewhere else from somewhere else is just it's just laughable. Um, this is uh, what happens with wishful thinking. First of all, it's also we have to say it's American pressure. The U.S. Uh, wants to cut uh, Russia out of the European market and mm-hmm. sell fra- fracked gas to the Europeans, except they don't have the infrastructure for it. I mean, they literally can't just bring it. You can't just put it on a boat. And sailed to Europe, you have to have an infrastructure and certain kinds of, of ports and equipment in order to do it, which they don't have. They can't get other countries to, to uh, produce more oil and gasoline. OPEC as a cartel exists to keep the price of energy high. So this idea that you're going to go to Saudi Arabia and ask them to uh, undermine themselves by producing uh, more oil is just laughable. But I I think that we have to talk about the fact that the European countries are a U.S. colony, and so they are treated like it, and um, they, um, they foster this dependence themselves. And so they've gotten themselves into this trap. And and that's when when I contemplate how bad this is and what they've done to themselves and their political systems, that's when I start laughing.
2: You know, and, and in a way it's worse than this. It's kind of the Donner Pass, you know. It's like things get desperate and somebody in the crowd gets eaten. You know, and the U.S. is eating its own colonies, you know, before it was we're going to go to Africa and we're going to go to South America. We're going to steal their bananas and their chocolate and all these wonderful things. We're going to steal everything from them. And the empire is going to live high on the hog off of it. And now things are kind of tight. So they're looking at Europe and they're like. Yeah, you guys look kind of tasty, too. Europe thought they were part of the empire and they would always benefit off the oppression of the empire. Now they're, I think, coming to realize that the U.S. empire is kind of hungry. They don't see food anywhere else. And they're just going to eat Europe. They're just like, hey, we'll make money off of you poor suckers and you can suffer. And if you have to be since we don't have a third world country that we can like exploit like we used to, I guess we'll have to create one. And that's you. The, the Leviathan. Yeah, Exactly. Margaret.
3: <laughs> well, you know, and, and we're seeing political trouble in Europe. Macron lost his majority in uh, the French. Uh, uh, he, he won his presidential election but lost his majority in their legislature. Boris Johnson is about to be the ex-prime minister of the U.K., uh, because he spends more time running to Kiev to to talk to Zelensky <laughs> than he does in dealing with rising energy prices and inflation and all of the disruption uh, that these sanctions have caused to the entire world economy. But, but you're absolutely right. Europe has been turned into the victim. It couldn't happen, frankly, to a better group of people. Uh, but, uh, but while I you know, am uh, uh, in, engaging in uh, joy at their suffering, it does worry me because their actions show these are not rational actors. These are not smart people. And who knows what they will do in their desperation?
0: I take a couple issues with this first article from People's Dispatch. One, it says that the U.S. has overtaken Russia for the first time as Europe's top gas supplier, as Europe has turned away from Russian imports. Europe didn't turn away from Russian imports. Europe was forced by the United States to turn away from Russian imports. The other point is that although liquefied natural gas from the US is sold to Europe at a much higher cost than pipeline gas from Russia, EU countries have no choice. Yes, they have a choice. They have, in fact, Olaf Scholz could call whoever it is in charge of Nord Stream 2 and say, tomorrow, turn the thing on, please, so we can solve this problem. It's what one of the things that is, that is obviously omitted is the US influence and impact and cause of this whole mess.
3: Oh, absolutely. These are these are vassal states, these are puppet governments and they are acting like it. Any you know, they they just had the uh, the G7 summit and the NATO summit and this and that Summit, and they all talked about how wonderful they are and their democracies, and uh, but but that we could see the farce with uh, Boris Johnson, I guess, drinking too much lately, uh, talking about Putin being shirtless and if he were a woman he wouldn't have invaded, all kinds of nonsense. I guess that's what happens when you're a state in decline, right? Um, but uh, they just are not. A drunk. Yeah, Well, there's that, too. (laughs) But these states are not democracies. They don't do what their people want. Uh, The the new NATO nations, Finland and Sweden, did not put it to a referendum. They didn't let their people decide. So they're not democracies themselves. They're doing things that hurt their populations. And they are not sovereign states. They are not uh, independent of the U.S which has created this whole mess in a futile effort to remain the world's hegemon in this futile effort to maintain uh, the unipolar world when the multipolar world is a reality.
2: Um, Margaret, Germany is apparently about to face some ungodly crisis when it comes to gas. What I think about is what you were just saying. How stupid can you be? You know that your industry is based off of cheap Russian energy, and they literally said, we are declaring economic war. That's what the French foreign minister said, economic war on Russia. You know you need them, and you declare economic war on Russia. Now, Russia's starting to dial back the old gauge a little bit on the gas. Today, the Kazakh oil pipeline— cut off because of, quote, technical issues. It seems to me that Russia's throwing some elbows, but it comes to this. How stupid can you be? You can't survive without these people. And you're like, hey, we're going to declare war on them economically. What could possibly go wrong, Margaret?
3: Well, there's a lot of delusion here. Um, I, I know they want to, the U.S. wants to maintain its hegemony. I know the Europeans are, are, are U.S. Uh, puppets. But actually, I think it's even worse than that. These are occupied countries. You know, we talk, I remember uh, before the Soviet Union uh, fell, we always talked about how these Eastern European nations were occupied by the evil Soviets. There are U.S. troops in the U.K., in Mm -hmm. Germany, in Italy. In uh, other uh, European nations, these are occupied, colonized country and countries, and they do as they are told. Uh, the last thing they know how to do is to be independent and to speak up for themselves. And this has been a long time coming. Uh, This uh, shooting themselves in the feet, but they expect the other, the rest of the world to do the same thing. And the rest of the world is saying no. So when they go to India and say, stop buying Russian, uh, uh, Russian gas and oil, India says, uh, actually, we're going to do whatever we want and buy from wherever we want. And plus countries trying to get into the BRICS alliance. So they are going to get left behind with the United States while the rest of the world moves on.
0: White House sparks backlash after saying high gas prices guard liberal world order. Uh, The White House messaging on elevated gas prices continues to provoke frustration. National Economic Council Chairman Brian Deese spoke with CNN after Joe Biden told reporters that the public should expect prices to remain at their current level for as long as it takes for Ukraine to win the war against russia they better have some time on their hands well that means forever because it ain't (laughs) happening partner uh no (laughs) sorry i've never laughed
3: so much when i've been on with you guys um yeah well it's, it's funny because this quote i mean that is what they're doing he said the quiet part out loud uh but it shows political tone deafness uh, and Biden did the same thing. We'll do whatever it takes to, you know, to, to fight the Russians. And meanwhile, people are suffering. They are suffering with this, uh, uh, this inflation and these rising energy prices. So this is the absolute truth. The U.S. Hegem- hegemony, the unipolar world, the liberal world, world order, whatever you want to call it, that is what they're trying to maintain. But they can't. And as far as defeating Ukraine, it's, it's a wrap. Uh, The Russians have declared victory in the Donbass, and anybody who knows what they're talking about confirms that they're telling the truth. They aren't going to leave. Ukraine has been permanently dismembered, so this is a, a delusion, and uh, politically, it's tone deafness that's going to get uh, the Democratic Party in trouble.
0: Just really quickly, to Barbara's point about the defeat in Donbass, I think Zelensky said yesterday that the Ukrainian troops, they didn't retreat They withdrew. There we go. Big difference there.
2: (laughs) At a high rate of speed. How's that? They withdrew at a high rate of speed. Uh, Margaret, the other thing is this. It shows this. When the elite ruling class, here's basically what they're saying. You people out there are going to suffer. We're rich. We got cooks. We got black cars. We don't worry about that stuff. You... Poor suckers, the working class—you guys and the poor and the working poor—will suffer as long as it takes to pre- to preserve what we consider the liberal world order, which is our ability to continue to screw over you and everyone one else in the world. It shows that the Biden administration is completely and totally detached from the electorate. Margaret Marie Antoinette said, "Let them eat cake." They didn't even offer cake. They just said <laughs> suffer. <laughs> At least offer, the, you know, rhetorically offer me some cake if I ain't going to get none. Margaret. I know
3: you're, you're right. It's like uh, you're not getting any cake uh, too bad. You got you to gotta help us out by going uh, cakeless. Um, yeah, but you're, but you're absolutely right. It's uh, the contempt that they show for the people. They can't hide anymore. And um, they, they don't even see the need. I thing I find interesting politically. They don't see the need to hide it. You know, it used to be they would, you know, talk the talk and uh, try to uh, get the public on their side and explain why their, their policies were going to help the people. And now they're just saying, screw you. They do it all the time. Uh, but uh, it's going to be it's going to be uh, interesting to see what happens when when they fail, because this tone deafness is not going to is not going to cut it.
0: Margaret, as we get out, I, I take issue with your saying that they're not trying to explain it. Joe Biden was very clear. It's Putin's price hike.
2: Oh my. Now, <laughs> what
0: part of that don't you get? Gee, my <laughs> me, Margaret. the the worst
3: worst propaganda of all time the worst, the absolute worst
0: (laughs) Margaret Kimberly as always thank you so much for your time, we greatly greatly appreciate that analysis, look forward to having you back. Thank you Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik I'm Wilmer Leon, I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon, there's more on the other side stay tuned Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For a number of months, Garland and I have been asking the question, how are these European heads of state going to be able to maintain power and control of their governments as their citizens begin to feel the pain of recession and no heating fuel? Now, France 24 reports Macron urges minority government to hang in there after cabinet reshuffle. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. Ted Rawl, as always, Ted, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So starting with France, and there are some other countries that we're going to bring into the conversation as well. French President Emmanuel Macron is looking to reset a second term that was derailed by his failure to win a parliamentary majority in the June elections. He urged his reshuffled cabinet to hang in there, saying opposition parties had turned down his offer to be part of a broader coalition government. Knowing that not all of the conflict is due to economics, but a lot of it is, Ted Rawl.
4: Yeah, a lot of it is. And we're talking about longstanding problems that have just been exacerbated. I mean, France has been uh, suffering the aftermath of uh, two decades or or more of uh, sort of the neoliberal uh, uh, project of uh, Americanization, as the French call it. Or, uh, we would, or austerity, uh, which is a word that's sort of fallen out of favor, but is still uh, very much at the center of neoliberal policies when it comes to uh, the benefits that workers and working-class people can expect from this government. Uh, and so uh, in recent months, uh, of course, in recent years, there were the yellow vests protests. Those are ongoing. Uh, there's, a, there's, on, there's been a longstanding problem with uh, underemployment and unemployment among uh, young college graduates uh, in France, uh, and there's also, and French graduated from college at a higher rate than Americans do. And there's now, of course, the uh, aftermath of the the, uh, uh, anti-Russia sanctions, which are really hurting Western Europe. Um, In fact, uh, the Wall Street Journal is breaking the news that France is planning to nationalize uh, one of its major front, uh, energy companies, corporations, in order to uh, try to uh, reduce profit-taking, or at least make the profits that derive from higher energy prices go back to the government in order to uh, sort of curtail the pain a little bit. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not surprising, really, that Macron is in, in a world of hurt. All things considered, uh, if I were him, I would think things are going pretty well.
2: You know, looking at at it right now, one of the issues in France—and France isn't even getting it as bad as, say, Germany and England— Yet, And they had the Yellow Vest movement, which, you know, kind of destabilized the country for the better part of a year. It seems to me that the French, you know, with their history of uh, taking to protest and revolution, shall we say, when I look at, you know, the protests that are starting in England, some starting in Germany, I would suspect that when and if things get as bad in France as they are in Germany and the UK, that the protest will be worse because of the culture of protest and revolution. I'd be concerned if I were the leaders in France. Very concerned. Ted?
4: Oh, I 100% agree. I mean, you know, it's not like the United States where, uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade has had effectively real, really no uh, political backlash from the left because there's no organized left. I mean, France has a vast socialist and communist and left libertarian and left anarchist left, uh, and it has many Marxist oriented political parties. It has It still has strong labor unions, and their influence is beyond their member goes beyond their membership, uh, like the CGT. And so, uh, you know, the the French are always ready to drop their jobs or uh, classrooms at the drop of a hat. Head out into the streets and uh, you know throw the occasional Molotov cocktail. So uh, that is it's it's always on with them. And um, I would I think the the only thing the only solace the governing the ruling class can take is that you know the french the, the french left is diverse and uh, electorally it's hard for them to unify and uh, and elect a leader that can challenge the right but they come together when it's time to to break things and take to the streets and uh, that is that is happening
0: you know you you mentioned the french government nationalizing the edf the power company and When you read the comments from Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne, we must have full control of our energy system and its performance. We must assure our sovereignty faced with the consequences of the war. And then the Wall Street Journal continues, France's decision is a measure of how European governments are taking increasingly assertive steps to control their energy markets as prices soar and Russian energy supplies dwindle. Uh, Germany this week moved to bail out gas utilities that are facing a cash crunch after Russia cut gas deliveries. The language of sovereignty faced with the consequences of war, I I wonder if that is a subtle message that they have to act independent of the United States interests and that this could be the beginning of. A shift in mindset. Am I reading too much into that? I don't think you are. I think that's correct.
4: Um, the the French, uh, if they had meant to talk about the need to be independent of Russian and other foreign sources of energy, they would have said, used the term uh, "We need to be energy independent." Mm-hmm. Uh, in France, in France, uh, sovereignty has a very specific meaning, <laughs> yes. even more so than here, and it usually. Has to go with us. It goes along with suspicion of the Anglo-American uh, influence over France. You know, this is a anti-Americanism and skepticism of American influence has been a part of French political life since 1945. Uh, the French expelled NATO from Paris. Something in the, in the 1960s under Charles de Gaulle. People forget these things. And yeah, they the, when you talk to ordinary French people, whether they are of the left the middle or the right. One thing that you'll hear, a common theme is, you know, we don't want to become the United States. We don't want the United States to push us around. So I would, I I read it the way you do.
2: You know, I don't see how the EU lasts but so long. I don't see how NATO lasts but so long, particularly with the upcoming winter. It certainly appears that Russia's not happy, and there could be an interruption of energy supplies in one way or another. It's already starting. Do you see France as getting mad at Russia saying, you cut off our energy supplies? Or do you see France, and I'm not saying these are either-or, showing a lot of anger at the U.S. and the U.K., since there has been enmity between France, particularly in the U.K., and the U.K. being one of the principal drivers behind this thing, do you see the French people, as as it were, start to Turn on the U.S., the U.K., saying, "You know, you dragged us into this mess, and now we're suffering for it."
4: Yeah, look, the French and the Brits have always been frenemies. Uh, you know, I mean, the, you know, we look at uh, the movie Dunkirk. Uh, you know, casts the evacuation of Dunkirk as sort of a glorious episode in World War II that allowed the British army to fight and fight again. The French don't look at it that way. They look at the French as the Brits dipping and leaving the French to the tender mercies of Nazi Germany. Uh, and so it, they're, there's, and you know, obviously uh, they have a long historical memory. And the, the fact is that they've gone, it goes back to, uh, well, you know, it goes back to the Middle Ages about uh, you know enmity between England and France. I don't think there. Um, I think that the general take, and of course, obviously, France is a politically diverse country. It's a big country, but the general take is that the the, the anti Russia sanctions went too far. Uh, You know, certainly they don't approve maybe of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but they weren't looking to upend the entire global economy or even try to tank the Russian economy. Uh, I think for the Russians, uh, a sternly worded uh, letter, I mean, for the French, a sternly worded letter might have sufficed. Um, You know, I think also the French as a country that, you know, definitely, uh, you know, fancies itself a great power. Uh, it would also can have some empathy uh, with Russia's position vis-a-vis Ukraine. Uh, I don't think France would want to have an enemy nation on its border either, and they can probably see that Ukraine. You know why the Russian argument for you know needing to secure its border with Ukraine. Um, they just, I think they just view this as go- having gone too far, and in uh, obviously you know the price that's being paid. Uh, by the French and the other European countries, you know, it's high and it's getting higher. And at a certain point, you have to ask yourself, why, if you're French, why are we doing this?
0: Well, and I think also uh, to that point, Ted, they also look at how ham-fisted all of this really was done and and based on in, t- in terms of, the go back to the Geneva meeting with Putin and, and, and Biden and, and Putin says I'm gonna send you my my demands in writing and I want you to respond in writing and then the United States basically ignores him. So you got Germany and France and they're saying, Well damn Joe, all you have to do is answer the phone. You know, you hear the phone ringing. All you got to do is pick it up and say hello. And he won't even do that. And now look at where we are because you just won't send a man a letter. I mean, (laughs) you know, so with that, as I just said in The Wall Street Journal, Germany this week moved to bail out gas utilities that are facing a cash crunch after Russia cut gas deliveries. Financial Times reports Germany warns of historic challenge as trade slides into deficit, soaring energy prices, and trading disruption push balance of 1 billion euros into the red for May. Germany is facing uh, similar crises as France and other countries are as this is impacting their economies. And so now in Germany, you have the Industrial class now banging on Olaf Schultz saying, man, you're killing us here. You better come up with a solution.
4: Yeah, they are. Um, you know, and it's, it's definitely one of those sink or swim, and, and they all seem to be tied to each other, and they're all sinking together. I mean, you yeah, know, I was a French citizen, uh, you know, when, when the EU uh, came to pass. I remember the vote, and I talked to other uh, French citizens about why they were voting to join the EU And you know, which was basically Germany's main project. Uh, You know, Germany was in charge of it, and uh, France was sort of the the junior partner in it. And you know, there was never a good reason that I understood. I mean, and it barely passed, by the way. It was like fifty-two percent in France, something that again, some Americans may be unaware of. And you know, you'd hear um, buzzwords like, "Well, it's modern. You know, it'll be modern. Um, It's more, it's more current." And, but you could never really get a good reason. And I think anything that – the reason I bring this up is when something has such a thin foundation, um, you know, as just sort of vague terms like, well, this is more contemporary, this is more modern, it doesn't have a, a strong basis. I mean no one can really tell you. Uh, it's sort of like the EU is almost like a, a, you know, a solution in search of a problem. And you can sort of see all the – I mean the, the fundamental weaknesses became apparent. In 2008, 2009, with the you know Portugal, you know uh, uh, Italy, uh, Greece, Spain issue, uh, with those countries' economies suffering tremendously, uh, while they were trying to keep up with austerity to sort of stay within the EU, Germany and France were griping because they had to uh, subsidize the you know the what they called the pigs countries, um, and it's you know it, it, it's not. I don't know if it's going to go next week, but I don't think it's going to be around forever.
0: I was in London when the EU vote was taking place in London, and it wasn't a pretty, pretty scene. I want to be sure we get Britain in here. Boris Johnson fights for political life amid resignations from his party. Bojo having problems, Macron having problems, Olaf Scholz having problems. Going back to what Garland and I were talking about, I wouldn't want to be the president or prime minister in a European country right now.
4: No, the people are restless. And, you know, Europeans take to the streets and and things can get ugly. Uh, I think uh, Boris Johnson's days are are obviously numbered. I mean, that's true about any prime minister. But if I were him, I'd be I'd be packing up from 10 Downing Street right now.
0: And maybe moving to 11 Downing Street. But get get out of 10.
2: Well, you know, one last thing I'll say on that is the EU is fundamentally anti-democratic because it's created by the elite class. That's the opposite of bottom up politics. Well, that's true. Uh, There was a plebiscite, uh, you know, at the time, but
4: it was shoved down the people's throats. And they were kind of told and convinced that if they didn't vote for it, uh, they were troglodytes. Uh, And, you know, and so that's why, again, I guess that that argument worked with just barely over half of Frenchmen. Uh, But, you know, again, it's just sort of like, well, what was the point of this? I mean, the Brits look pretty smart uh, to have never joined the uh, the uh, common currency at this point. And, you know, I mean, sure, there's res- there's some Brexit resentment on the part of young people who'd like to be able to go take a job in the Czech Republic or whatever. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it-, it definitely seems like a very flim- flimsy piece of cloth
0: to me. Ted Roll, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you so much, folks. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Lee, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune has a piece. A president of Mexico says Statue of Liberty should be removed if U.S. does not acquit Assange. The President of Mexico, Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador, or AMLO, made an interesting comment this past Monday, July 4th, calling for the Statue of Liberty to be taken down if WikiLeaks founder, Julian Assange, is not acquitted from all charges by the United States. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace. He's an editor and contributing columnist for Black Agenda Report. He serves on the executive committee for for the U.S. Peace Council and leadership body of the U.S.-based United National Anti-War Coalition and the Steering Committee for the Black is Back Coalition. Ajamu Baraka, as always, welcome back. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, quote, if they take him to the U.S., they will give him a maximum sentence and he will die in prison, said Lopez Obrador during his morning press conference. We have got to start a campaign to take down the Statue of Liberty given to them by the French in New York because it is no longer a symbol of liberty. Very strong statement from a president of another nation Your thoughts, Ajamu Baraka?
5: Well, I mean, it's strong and and a very interesting one. Uh, But the implication is that uh, the U.S. is doing something out of of character, something that would disqualify it from being um, seen or presenting itself as a symbol of liberty, a defender of democracy and human rights and all of the classical values connected to liberalism. But many of us will argue that uh, the US has been disqualified from the very beginning of its existence, that it was always a myth that uh, the US was a land of liberty, especially when we understand and we know uh, the genesis of this settler colonial nation, a nation born out of a war waged against uh, the indigenous peoples uh, and a almost complete genocide. Uh, and the importation and enslavement of Africans, um, and the continuation of uh, that colonial relationship between those groups uh, from the very beginning of this nation's uh, existence up until today. So, you know, if if the president of Mexico had um, commented on the fact that the U.S. has the longest Uh, serving uh, political prisoners and prisoners of war in this country. That would have been very helpful Uh, if he would have reminded uh, people that uh, it was the Obama administration that uh, utilized the uh, uh, Espionage Act uh, more than any, all of the previous presidents um, uh, combined uh, to uh, undermine press freedom, to, uh, to criminalize uh, whistleblowers. Uh, and perhaps maybe if he would have remembered to raise up another important uh, case, uh, Ch- Chelsea Manning, who is also associated with the Assange case, uh, as another one of those examples of, of the, uh, the assault on uh, human dignity, on liberal values. Uh, and in fact, common sense. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting uh, comment, uh, uh, gentlemen. But, you know, if he if he believes this is the act uh, that uh, uh, takes the U.S. over the line of demarcation between being a a nation upholding uh, classical liberal values uh, and a, uh, a rogue state. Uh, that line was crossed uh, more than a few hundred years ago. Yeah,
2: and, you know, and I appreciate, I think that uh, the president of Mexico has taken a lot of very daring positions considering his country's, you know, uh, close proximity to a very dangerous U.S. empire. But I, I agree with you in this instance in p- particular, because it implies something that's misleading. You know, it implies that if Assange is acquitted, that the Statue of Liberty should stay up because it really represents something yep. that, in my opinion, the Statue of Liberty and things like the Home of the Free and the Brave and blah, 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 these were always a mask to hide the dark reality underneath. You can ask the people of Haiti. You can ask the people of Venezuela and Cuba, on and on and on, whether or not that Statue of Liberty <laughs> should be up there. And they all all say, oh, no, that Liberty statue ain't got nothing to do with us. They do the opposite.
0: Well, before you respond to John, let me take a slight Different approach. Because everything that Ajamu you've said and everything that Garland said is absolutely right. Can't push back on any of it. But looking at it as in the context of Assange, if AMLO goes the way you all want him to go, does Assange's position get lost in the argument? And AMLO's approach then becomes an anti-American rant as opposed to a pro-Assange plea?
5: Mm-hmm. No, that's a very that's a very astute um, um, uh, question oh,
6: okay. and commentary okay. in the
5: question. Okay. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> that you. Basically, yeah, you're right. That strategically, in terms of raising the visibility of the Assange case, because we know that it's not really getting the kind of coverage in the bourgeois press that it should get, uh, I think this was a very important uh, comment to make. And you're right. If we would have... I think the comments that 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 I made, uh, I won't attempt to speak for Garland. Was just kind of putting that in context. That mm-hmm. basically, mm-hmm. there's a whole host of things that he could have commented on. But if the if the focus was to raise the visibility of the Assange case, then that makes sense. The problem I have though with that though is again, the it, it, the the implication that Garland touched on that, you know, if if he was in fact uh, acquitted, then that means that uh, the U.S. Uh, should continue to be seen as some kind of beacon of, of, of democracy and freedom. And so that kind of ideological implication there uh, is not helpful because it, uh, it perpetuates a, a distortion of the history of this country. It props up ideologically um, the, the state uh, and the, the forces that uh, many of us see as uh, representing the number one uh, enemy of collective humanity on this planet.
2: Something else interesting, Venezuelan foreign affairs minister Carlos Faria reported that he met with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, earlier today in Moscow. They discuss issues related to U.S. coercive economic measures and it goes on and on. It certainly appears as though there is activity afoot, whether it's the BRICS nations, Venezuela, Moscow, China, et cetera, that, that there is an anti-imperialist bloc that is not just rhetorically anti-imperialist, but they are making economic moves to give themselves the opportunity. Opportunity to get the foot of the U.S. empire off their neck in a real way, Ajamu. Well,
5: that's true. I mean, it, it, they, they, they're anti-U.S. imperialists, anti-U.S. and European imperialists, um, and they're raising important issues regarding uh, the, uh, and this is connected to the, the first story, the, the kind of, 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 of rogue statism we see coming from the U.S., um, because the U.S. right now, the classical commitment to uh, international law is something that they can no longer afford. It becomes, it has become an impediment for the continued domination uh, of the U.S. So, you know, they want to uh, shift away from the United Nations um, and and to this thing they call the rules-based order, which is basically uh, the rules that the U.S. will uh, create. Uh, and the order that they will then enforce based on those rules, as opposed to, uh, opposed to, uh, to international law. Uh, and the sanctions being a classic example of that, that these are uh, coercive efforts, uh, measures uh, meant to punish those nations uh, that will not uh, uh, adhere uh, to, to U.S. Uh, uh, imposition, uh, U.S. policies, um, and these these sanctions are, in fact, illegal. And so, um, you know, this is something that uh, needs to be said more and more of, especially as uh, the U.S. attempts or appears to becoming more and more desperate uh, in their attempts to maintain uh, their hegemony by uh, undermining the entire international
0: order. Looking at this photograph of Carlos Faria standing there with Sergei Lavrov. It makes me think about how President Maduro has really risen to a whole nother level in terms of his statesmanship and how he's being respected by countries around the world. While while Joe Biden was hosting his summit of some of the Americas, President Maduro was on a world tour and was, I'll just say, out there kicking butt and taking names I mean, in terms of the way that he, he was received. And so I wanted you to, to speak to that, that he really seems to be on the ascension now. And how is he being received or perceived in the region? Well, you know, the, the, the space
5: um, was definitely created uh, for Maduro. Uh, to, uh, and, and for the Russians uh, to, to elevate their, their presence, uh, especially at a moment where the U.S. and the European nations were attempting to try to isolate both the Russians and to, con- to continue to try to continue to isolate uh, Venezuela. Uh, and so with the uh, debacle that's been Ukraine um, and the, the, the shift, shifting taking place globally, Uh, toward uh, the Russians, toward the Chinese, uh, then that relationship between Venezuela and Russia um, becomes even more important. And the meetings of those two nations, especially now that the U.S. is attempting to court the Venezuelans, uh, is very important. Uh, And so, you know, it does not do anything but enhance the standing of Venezuela and maduro uh, personally, in the region, uh, and as you said in your question, um, uh, globally. And when we talk about globally, we're talking about the real globe, mm-hmm. the real world, not mm-hmm. just uh, that section of, of, of in the U.S. They, they they refer to as the as the globe or
2: the world. And it also seems to me that Venezuela is in a position, as is Iran, these countries, because they, their resources are needed, they're getting to be in a position where they can make decisions as to how they move forward, that they're not, uh, you know, that they can that work with some of the powerful countries and, and move in the direction that they want to move. And I suspect it'll anger the U.S. that a significant amount of the money that comes into Venezuela is actually going to help the Venezuelan people.
5: Exactly. I mean, the, the issue here is and has always been, the issue is, is is national sovereignty. That the U.S. has been able to um, um, undermine um, the sovereignty of, of nations uh, when they would not uh, uh, um, uh, subordinate themselves to U.S. interests. Uh, that ability to, in fact, do that has been um, undermined somewhat. Um, now, of course, Venezuela is not in the same position of, of Russia in terms of being able to... Uh, to resist the, the consequences of these massive, uh, uh, maximal um, sanctions being imposed on them. But the, the, the experience of resistance is one that's been very, very important for the global south. Uh, and of course, yes, the U.S. is, is concerned about uh, its is, is, is prestige being undermined by the ability of these states to uh, to resist. Uh, And and the role that the Russians are playing in there for their own national interest
3: Mm
7: -hmm.
5: in helping with that resistance taking place in the global south. That's why the relationship between the oil sectors of Russia and and Venezuela is so vitally
0: important at this point. Ajamu Baraka, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer leigh I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Saker has a piece entitled, Why Don't the African Cosmos Support the West in Its Sanctions War Against Russia? The answer may not be simple, but the memory of European colonization in Africa and its harmful effects are visible, despite the independence of its states may be a reasonable way of understanding it. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moores Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So the piece opens, uh, an African adage teaches that one should never forget the lessons learned in the times of pain, which seems to be the source of inspiration for the African cosmos, the set of entities that formally and materially hold the power relations in Africa, not to forget the tragic consequences of European colonization to protect their independence and not Repeat the errors of the past Without being simplistic or too complex The answer to the question in question May have several reasons Dr. Gerald Horn, your thoughts
8: Well, I think it's crystal clear, crystal clear Why African nations are reluctant To align with the NATO countries With regard to this latest escapade uh, African countries more than most recall what happened about a decade ago when you had the NATO countries under the leadership of Barack Obama and Nicolas Sarkozy of France, who ousted uh, President uh, Muammar Gaddafi of Libya, and of course he was assassinated uh, on tape. Uh, We know that Sarkozy was so enthusiastic, as court filings later revealed, because apparently uh, he had received some under-the-table campaign donations and other emoluments uh, from Tripoli, and he recognized that dead men tell no tales. Uh, Since that uh, inglorious episode, you've seen Libya descend into chaos. You just saw the parliament building building in Tobruk, Libya, uh, be assaulted uh, by mobs. We know that A kind of neo-slavery has arisen in Libya. We know that scores, if not more, have died seeking to cross the Mediterranean uh, into Italy, where they then receive a reception that's less than gracious. And yet these are the same countries who are now demanding that uh, African nations uh, toe the line, uh, as represented by the bill we've talked about more than once, but it deserves uh, even more attention, the bill by Congressional Black Caucus member Gregory Meeks of Southeast Queens, which calls upon the U.S. to punish and pulverize African nations who do not toe the line, the U.S. line, on Central and Eastern Europe. And I think that the wider question, setting NATO and Libya aside, And even setting aside uh, what was even worse with regard to what NATO did in Southern Africa before the independence of South Africa in 1994, where it collaborated with the apartheid authorities, both on the books and off the books, Uh, we saw that NATO member Portugal was a leading colonial power in Angola and Mozambique, not to mention due north and Guinea-Bissau before the revolution that overthrew fascism on April 25th. 1974, but setting all that aside with regard uh, to NATO, and I'm happy to do so, in fact, because it's a, a very smelly topic to discuss, the fact is that African nations probably see that there's more to be gained by hitching a ride with what seems to be the winning horse. Uh, speaking of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, speaking of the Belt and Road Initiative of the People's Republic of China, and by the way, uh, you might have seen the unveiling of the new parliament building uh, built by Chinese interests in Zimbabwe, uh, somewhat distant from the capital of Harare, which means that there will be a uh, spin-off industries and shops developed, meaning that it'll be a... Uh, shot of adrenaline into the bloodstream of that African country, suffering and languishing under sanctions by the North Atlantic countries because it had the gumption to try to redistribute the land, taking land from the European invaders and redistributing it to a wider populace. Uh, You saw a similar uh, development taking place just outside of Cairo, where China has built a light rail system to the new capital. And so... I think that the African nations think that the better part of wisdom is to uh, basically uh, align with the rising force and to try to shun not only the declining force, but the declining force, which has a more than an iota of malevolence that is not above using violence to accomplish its goals. And so I think that only the naive should be surprised by this turn of events.
2: If you could speak to this other issue of the new economic world order and how that would be viewed by the Africans in that we've recently seen that China and Russia are building a new BRICS. It's expanding with South Africa, supposedly, and Iran and possibly Argentina and and, and maybe Brazil shortly. And, and they're talking about creating a new currency, a new world-type currency or international reserve currency. The global south has been kept out Of the economic landscape the economic picture by the or I won't say kept out I'll put it like this they've been placed at the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to economics where the only thing they can contribute in the western order the U.S. led western order was their resources at a discounted price or almost at nothing how do you think they see bricks etc you know looking for them in the future
8: well, I think they're optimistic, and I'm glad you brought up the concept of a new economic order, because that should induce a note of caution, because I'm old enough to recall what happened some decades ago before the retreat of the socialist camp in Eastern Europe, when there was much talk, not only at the United Nations, but in the non-aligned movement as well, about a new international economic order. And we saw what happened. Uh, we saw that the United States came roaring back, that it uh, aligned with the religious zealots in Afghanistan in order to bleed the Soviet intervention to bolster a left-leaning party, the People's Democratic Party of Kabul. Uh, it was not above aligning with neo-fascists uh, in Kabul. And certainly the results today that you see in Kabul, despite the fact that ultimately... There was a falling out between thieves the religious zealots in washington the fact is that uh, they are in power now and the people's democratic party has either been liquidated or driven into exile Is because of the fact that there was a very brutal counter reaction uh, to this idea of left-leaning parties developing a new international economic order but having said that Uh, I'm more optimistic about the possibility of that concept being carried through uh, today, not only because there's much more awareness about the vulture-like capabilities of the uh, so-called rules-based international order, the so-called liberal order, Uh, speaking of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, both uh, based in your own Washington, D.C., which are the uh, modern-day versions of a collection agency uh, combined with a kind of uh, stick-up agency. And so uh, because of that realization and that awareness, I think that uh, African nations, and to a degree Latin American nations too, uh, will be seeking these alternatives. And speaking of the liner, of course, uh, we're optimistic as well because of the turn to the left. south of the U.S. border uh, with the elections in Brazil coming up in a few weeks with Lula being in the poll position, although uh, Mr. Bolsonaro, the incumbent, is threatening to do a Trump and threatening a coup. Uh, But in any case, uh, whether he is able to do so or not, I think the long-term trend in this hemisphere is clear. And I think that that's one of the reasons why there's so much hysteria right now. Hysteria not only because, obviously, the escapade in Central and Eastern Europe is backfiring. Uh, you saw the headlines about the export machine that is Germany and now suffering a trade deficit. That is to say, it's importing more than it's exporting. And that's only the beginning, I'm afraid to say. And that will inevitably lead to fractures and fissures in the North Atlantic bloc, which will only redound to the benefit of the
0: global south. There were two other elements in this piece that I thought very interesting that make this whole position by African countries to be nothing but practical. So they go through all the historic context, and then they say Russia, on the other hand, has become the main military alternative, accounting for 49% of total arms exports to Africa by 2020 to avoid internal conflicts and protect itself from external interference. And then they go on to say... That the way the West treats Ukrainian refugees compared to what has been done with African refugees arriving via the Mediterranean and from the Canary Islands via the Atlantic has not been forgotten. It it, it sounds like long term memory, practical realities, and the fact that these countries want grain because they got to eat.
8: Well, we just had a tragic exhibit of what you're referring to within the last few days, you saw the dozens of Africans die seeking to enter Spain. You know that Spain has this colonial enclave called Melilla on the northern coast of Africa in Morocco. If Africans can climb that fence uh, uh, separating Morocco from Melilla, uh, they can enter the European Union, that is to say Spanish territory, in, cert- in search of work. Uh, and, of course, because of the global imbalances, because of the structure of the imperialist economy, which mandates that African nations do not develop, that means that young African men in particular are heading uh, from Senegal and Gambia, heading northward to Manila and You saw the same thing i 'm afraid to say uh, west of where i 'm sitting, and that is to say, in San Antonio, Texas, where dozens of Mexicans and Central Americans, Hondurans, Guatemalans, El Salvadorians die in a truck in the heat uh, seeking work uh, in the United States of America because of the structure of imperialism which systematically underdevelops uh, their economies per what the late Guyanese scholar Walter Rodney wrote about some years ago in his classic book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. Uh, someone could write a book about how the United States has underdeveloped the hemisphere. And so I think that those realities are helping to drive African leaders and African intellectuals and trade union leaders into a mass flight away uh, from the talons and clutches of the bloodthirsty imperialist powers as they seek an alternative uh, with regard to not only the BRICS, but the uh, Eurasian Economic Union headed by Moscow, with regard to the BRICS Bank, which by some measures is already uh, more potent than the World Bank headquartered in Washington, D.C. So as noted, uh, there is reason and
0: grounds for optimism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. RT has a piece entitled, Russia has made a decisive break with the West and is ready to help shape a new world order. It's perhaps hard to believe now, but only eight years ago, Russia was a full member of the former G8. Since then, there have been dramatic changes. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a writer at the polemicist.net and Counterpunch and author of Ukraine Negotiation Kabuki, Dr. Jim Kavanaugh. Jim, as always, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So this is really a a reflection on how things have changed in a very short period of time talking about before the G7 leaders met at Elmau Castle in Bavaria their counterparts from the five BRICS held an online summit under the Chinese presidency. Uh, Russia has long been has been discussed as a threat at the G7 but was a key participant in the latter. Oh, my, how times have changed, Jim Kavanaugh. Yeah,
9: you know, uh, back when uh, the United States helped to engineer the uh, demise of the Soviet Union and uh, brought about the Yeltsin era, which pretty much destroyed the country, uh, it was thought that uh, Russia was going to be part of the compliant U.S. world order, and uh, Everything's going to be hunky-dory, but you know uh, that didn't work out that way. It didn't didn't last very long. Putin even tried, and 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 even after Putin came in, they tried to integrate themselves into the. They really thought, you know, that the that the rhetoric of the West and of the United States might be sincere. And, you know, it's funny because when I remember watching Gorbachev for the time talking to you, and I said, "This guy sounds like an American liberal," you know. They thought that was sincere. And Putin even asked to be, why don't we we join NATO? No, 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 no. That's not what it was about. It was about getting control of the Russian landmass, breaking up that uh, as as a strong polity and, you know, getting its economic wealth and destroying its military power. And that's what it's been about. and It's taken a long time for Russia to kind of make up what seems to be a final break with that, because they have to. But progressively, the United States and the West made clear to Russia that we're going to punish you anytime we want for anything we want, starting with the Magnitsky Act and all the not, the biggest fraud in the world, Bill Browder, and then the scribbles and just putting sanctions and sanctions. And essentially, they were constantly saying to Russia, the only way you're going to get out of this is to admit guilt for everything we accuse you of and come to us with contrition. And that was never going to happen because most of it was just fiction. And now it's come to this. And we have the situation now where Russia is strong enough that it's intervening militarily in a way that the United States can stop. It's strong enough economically that all these sanctions are hurting the West more than they're hurting Russia. Russia is, is uh, still, and, and even more so, the you know, biggest country in the world, huge amounts of natural wealth and essential commodities. It's now partnered with China, which is the strongest economic power in the world. And all of the Western, global West and South are ready to, uh, to align with it to create a world order that is not dominated by the United States. So this is what's happening, and that's what uh, you know, a lot of people for a long time said, you know Putin had better break this get, do away with this notion that he's actually going to persuade the rest to kind of see things reasonably, and now the West has persuaded him <laughs> of that. so you know, who knows what's going to happen here, but we are entering a period where it is a real, quote-unquote, new world order, and uh, we don't know where it's going to be. You know, I have no particular um, rosy illusions about Russia or China, or, but, you know, it's a world order now that's not going to be controlled by the United States and in which emerging countries will have the room, uh, it looks like, to follow their own path of development without constantly being preached on and attacked.
2: Uh, You know the other thing that's interesting is the misjudgment of the neocons. You know the U.S. kind of bullied you know Africa and the the Global South around, and when they said, "Okay, everyone, join us in this coalition of the willing, as it were, to take Russia down," they actually believed that India and that all of these other countries, barring. any concept of history and how these countries had been dealt with by the colonial powers of um, Europe and, of course, of the U.S. empire, they actually believed that all of these countries were going to join in with them. And these countries, it seemed to me, were all just waiting, saying we've been dominated and mistreated for literally centuries by the U.S. and the colonial powers in Europe. And uh this may be a nice opportunity for us. So it's not just Russia breaking decisively with the West. It looks like countries that have been abused for literally centuries from the West looking for another, for an opportunity for a a new economic outlook also, Jim. Your thoughts?
9: Oh, absolutely. Look, you know, this is the point. China, the Belt and Road Initiative, China brings development. They bring ports. They bring infrastructure. The United States brings bombs. And so the countries of the global South so to speak, now have economic power that they can turn to and military power. This is, you now it is important. What's happened with Russia as a, Russia is the country that intervened militarily, starting in Syria. That's why they're furious about Putin starting with that and started to interrupt American hegemony and American imperialism in a military sense. And now in this case, they've demonstrated that they can act decisively in a military sense to force back American and NATO in, in Ukraine, which is what they're what they're what they're doing, um, and that's so. These countries of the Global South, which were afraid of the United States militarily and economically, because they were dependent on these financial inst—not only on the financial institutions, but actually on—you know—the economic development was under the control. They now see a path forward, at least a glimmer of a path forward, that has economic and military power behind it that, that, that is, is a, a, a path which doesn't require them to, you know, for, to be children, to act like children. And they remember also, you know, the South Africans are the are classic of this, you know, you come to us, you say we should attack us. When we had, you know, because they remember the history of the Soviet Union, the history of, when we were going through a struggle against apartheid, who was our friend? You know, and so now they have the ability. So you know, we don't we don't have anything against Russia, <laughs> and uh, so they remember the anti-colonial struggles and what the Soviet Union whose side the Soviet Union was on in that. And now they're capable of you know Russia and China and, and, and India uh, are, and Brazil are capable of creating having a backbone of economic and military strength now, and they have to turn that into a financial institutions that get out of the. The, the dollar system and the American domination of the financial institutions. But there is a way forward now that they see and they're going to take it.
0: And it's important, I think, to really pay attention. Uh, there is a piece in task. Venezuela's foreign minister, Carlos Faria, says that the U.S. dominance is no longer an absolute one. A new world is being born. Russia is on the front line of the struggle. Russia and Putin are conducting this struggle in the name of humanity against the terroristic and hostile alliance known as NATO. So as you've just talked about in response to Garland's question, what we're really seeing here for the most part is an economic response to American hegemony. And when you, I say economic and, and people say, well, Wilmer, what about Ukraine? Well, that was a defensive move. And it was a defensive move that was really initiated to a great degree by Joe Biden saying Nord Stream 2 will not be turned up. You know, that was, in my opinion, the United States starting the fight. And when you talked about Syria, that's a defensive move. That wasn't an offensive move by, by Russia. That was a defensive move by Russia. So you have an economic structure, an economic order that is now capable of being defended by china and defended by russia dr Kavanaugh yeah uh look
2: I'm
9: not even that uh you know fixate on the word defensive there are offensive moves that are counterattacks <laughs> in, okay. in a war that, okay. that you you know that are not that, that are not active i you see what i'm doing I'm, I'm being a little picky here but you know i don't want to I, I don't feel the need to say that everything i'm doing i'm only just I'll, I'll, people are only can only be defensive no they can go on the offense when it's for the right reason and when they're themselves are under attack and it's in the context of a larger war that's why i called ukraine the battle battle of ukraine you look what you're seeing is a battle in a larger war mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know people go on the offense in battles that doesn't mean they were the aggressors in the war yeah. uh, so you know and and you have this situation but uh um, with uh, countries like Venezuela, I mean, the economic thing is very good. Venezuela has the largest oil supplies in the world, best and, the, and good oil, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but they had the problem. That once the United States started attacking them economically and putting them under economic siege and putting them under sanctions, to keep the production going with the equipment and the materials, etc. the United States cut them off from American supplies. That and now the Chinese have come in and helped them with that. So they can get back on their feet in terms of production of the oil that they have. And the Americans can't do it. Well, what can they do? They sit around saying we're going to attack them as well. Maybe they will, but that's not going to be working out for them very well. You know, I mean, you can't be attacking everybody in the world. Hasn't worked out for them yet (laughs) in the long run. So, you know, they're in this position. These countries are now in this position where they have allies. They have strong allies, economically strong allies, which enable them to build up their production facilities. Whatever the United States does, sanctions or not. And this is, they see that these allies are the ones that are going to give them a future outside this framework of we're children and the United States tells us what to do and, and judges us and, and attacks us and spanks us when we're wrong. And that's, that's you know, the, 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 the pole of attraction for the entire Global South and what used to be called the non-aligned countries. You know, you're not asking us to be your children. You're not going to treat us like that. So and we we know the United States will. They have no other way of acting with people. So that's really what's going on here. And it's it's Iran, Venezuela. I mean, these countries have now emerged from sanctions and from attacks in a way that they're not they're not weaker. They're they're stronger.
2: Uh, The other thing, Jim, is the alliance that the you know the the we'll call this the global South and Russia, China, whatever alliance has a lot of countries with a tremendous amount of natural resources. When you look at Russia, when you look at Africa and and South America, and they have China and India, so they have a tremendous amount of labor and industrial resources. So we're looking at the U.S. and and, and, and NATO, uh, you know, the U.S. coalition, which lives off of their wealth is based on, like, derivatives and asset-backed securities and magic. These people have real hard commodities, which is going
0: to make them, in my opinion, stronger on a world market. In fact, just really quickly to that point, it reminds me of the of the cocoa story. I think it was Ghana, yes, that said they were going to instead of selling the raw cocoa on the international market, they were going to process their own. And Switzerland said, "We won't buy it from you if you process your own." China came in and said, "Don't worry about it. We'll take it." That into that story. Go ahead, Jim.
3: Yes. <laughs>
9: A lot of Chinese like those pop chocolate. And a lot of Chinese, <laughs> <laughs> so very good. Yeah, exactly. Look, this is the point. So Michael Hudson talks about what he calls industrial socialism and versus financial capitalism. Here, whether it's socialism and as one but it's 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 the production of real goods and commodities. It, you know, and and you know, the United States gave up on that, and so they don't even produce. I mean, they don't even make their own bullets. <laughs> I mean, so. So you know, you now have countries that have, and, and people have forgot. You, know, you talk about nature and ecology, nature and raw materials and raw and com- basic commodities are the stuff of life. And if you give up the ability to uh if these countries have those they can build on those and build real wealth on them if they're not tied into what you what you call exactly the speculative financial system the point of it is to to to, tr- to trade the, the economy the commodities for dollars because well, you need dollars for everything and more dollars is the better you know money is 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 or should be a tool for economic Production and the production of economic value—not a—not a thing in itself that you chase after—and let's hope we have a world that uh, they, they can create a world order that will, you know, uh, uh, nurture that rather than the other. But this is that the Americans have this week. Look, I just saw in, this, in one of these articles they mentioned that uh, <clears throat> Russia went from export from importing most of uh, its its uh, high technology goods and industrial goods from Germany to exporting them from from to importing them from China. So, what are you going to do now? What's the Germans? What 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 leverage do the Germans have? BASF has to close its plants because they can't. They're not getting the raw materials and the commodities and the essential things they need from Russia because they because they decided to sanction Russia. So this is mm-hmm. you know it is a new world order and we don't know where it's going, but it's going to be interesting.
0: <laughs> and when China starts exporting cars, it'll be a whole other ball game. Doctor Jim Kavanaugh, as always, sir. We appreciate that analysis. Look forward to having you back. Okay, thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. Orinoco Tribune has a piece entitled, NATO Officially Adds China to Its List of Enemies. Leaders of the member countries of the imperialist NATO military alliance concluded their annual summit in Madrid. The summit was a clear display of NATO's commitment to continuously fuel the fire of international conflict as the major capitalist powers dragged the world back into a Cold War-style period of global confrontation. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest He works with Tell the Word, the publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in inner city Washington. He was a intelligence officer and then became a CIA analyst for 27 years. He's on the steering group of veteran intelligence professionals for sanity. Ray McGovern, as always, Ray, welcome back. Thank you. So Orinoco continues, in preparation for the summit, NATO members prepared a new strategic concept document that described the alliance's key goals moving forward. Uh, The principal target is Russia, which it labels the most significant and direct threat to NATO. And then uh, Jen Stoltenberg, the secretary general, promised even more support for Ukraine's military but the strategic concept also included a new and highly notable addition to NATO's official enemies, China. Your thoughts, Ray McGovern.
6: Well, let me just uh, comment uh, or draw from a comment by John Mearsheimer, uh, the premier exponent of uh, the realistic school of international relations. It was very, very quick and very concise. He says, look, Russia, despite, despite what NATO says, Russia is not a threat to the US. China, on the other hand, is a peer competitor. We should not want Russia to be uh, driven together with China. Uh, this, after all, violates balance of power 101. I mean, Hello, as if this hadn't already been happening. Now it's codified in a NATO document, which says uh, China's a a big, uh, not competitor, but a a systemic challenge, whatever that means. And so we're taking on the world. And as Mearsheimer comments, uh, we should want Russia, which is not a threat to the United States. We should want Russia on our side, instead we're driving them together. That is Russia and China. This violates balance of power 101. Now, if this were just an academic exercise, it really wouldn't matter very much. Uh, It's not an academic exercise. There are threats being made to um, the issue of Taiwan, Uh, it's a very sensitive issue with China, and you know, if you put yourself in the position of Chinese or Russian leaders, you have to wonder, what's going on? Are these people so dumb that they drive us together? Uh, Is it likely that they would uh, start a dust-up with either one of us and not expect that the other would support? ally or whatever you want to call it these days, they call themselves better than allies. So it's really, <laughs> it's a conundrum. Uh, it's uh, really confusing. And I can imagine that uh, policymakers in Moscow and in Beijing uh, need to be just very much on tenterhooks because there's no, there's no predicting where this could lead. Ukraine is not going well for the West. Uh, Neither is uh, the situation in the Far East where China is making inroads, even on those Pacific islands that Mm -hmm. we covered or that we thought we ruled. So uh, the world is kind of different now. And uh, it's been a whole year since Obama, (laughs) Obama, uh, but Biden thought or said that Biden told Putin, you know, we know you got this creepy problem, and it's China, and they're squeezing you. And we know you have to worry about that long border and China being a military. We know about that. Well, give me a break. That was 40 years, that was four decades ago. Right now, Russia and China are joined at the hip, and the Chinese are taking a uh, real askance. They're taking shots. The uh, Chinese ambassador to the UN yesterday says, look, you know, it's time you learn the lessons from Ukraine, for God's sake. And it's time that uh, you try not to provoke a new Cold War and not to look for imaginary enemies in the Asian Pacific or contrive disputes and divisions. Now whether that's what the U.S. is trying to do or not, that's how the Chinese see it. And that's what matters. Whether what the U.S. is trying to do in Ukraine is is what the Russians see. It's not what the U.S. or NATO conceives itself to be or to be doing. It's how Russia looks at it. And this is a powder cake. And Avril Haynes, the head of, of, of national intelligence, has warned that the Ukraine thing is a is really a, a tough slog. It's really, really bad. And uh There's no indication that it will end anytime soon and uh, Russia is becoming even more antagonistic to the United States. Surprise, surprise. So April Haines does not get to determine US policy. That's Joe Biden's job and what he says is we're good for the long haul. We're going to take as long as it takes to get Russia chastised. what it did in Ukraine. Well, good luck, Joe. The only people that profit from this are what I call the Mickey Mat, the Military Industrial Congressional Intelligence Media Academia Think Tank Complex, Mickey Mat. And here's a little story just in yesterday. BAE Systems, the major arms arms maker and and deliverer in Europe, it's a British firm, as a big uh, big uh, place in, in uh, the United States as well. Their stock has been soaring. They have had a lobbying triumph. $300 million worth of uh, M777 howitzers going to Ukraine. And guess who's on the board of that? Uh, well, former CIA director Gina Haspel. Bloody Gina. Who is torturing. the yeah the torture in chief at the first uh, CIA black site in Thailand. She sits on the BAA systems board of directors. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, power, money, uh, it all corrupts. And they get these people good jobs after they leave their areas of competence, so to speak.
2: Let me ask you about this, because I know you evaluated these types of things, Ray, and that is, what do we learn about nato at a time when you know these when you look internally most of the countries in in europe are on the verge of internal economic collapse, and yet they are meeting, you know, with their chest out and their chin high. We're tough. We're going to take on Russia. We're going to take on China. We're going to rule. The, we're going to do this. And when you look internally at their countries, they are at a, in a, in in the midst of economic disaster. The people are in the streets and starting to take to the streets. They're screaming at the top of their lungs. We're cold. We're hungry. Well, maybe not quite cold yet, but that's coming. Your thoughts on the bravado of NATO in the face of the reality of the economic,
6: let's, shall we say challenges that they're facing at this time? Well, Garland, just a couple of months ago, of course, we were emphasizing, that is our media, emphasizing the silver lining here. You know, uh, doesn't matter what's happening to those poor Ukrainians. This has gotten relations among countries in the white West really, really tight markedly improved because of the war in Ukraine. Now, John Mearsheimer is just one who has always pointed out that that may be true for the moment, like two months ago. <laughs> but there are deep fissures under the surface, and they're bound to reassert themselves over time. Well, I don't know who Biden's economic advisors are or were when they decided on this sanctions policy, where the Europeans and everybody else in the world can suffer, including Americans now. Uh, But, you know, they're as foolish as this foreign policy advisers. It's coming, the the, the hens are coming back to roost here. And uh, that one story earlier today from the Spanish uh, legislator, the the member of the Spanish parliament, I mean, he got up (laughs) and he said, well, a lot of people are either already thinking or are just about to think. His name is Gerardo Pisarello. and he said that the NATO summit was simply organized to enrich the weapons trade. Oh, sounds like the Mickey Mouse, doesn't it? <laughs> it? It's arranged to reinforce the geostrategic priorities of the United States and to weaken China. And what he did, he went on to condemn U.S. Vassal statage. he calls it vassalage—calling for a new autonomous European security model. Well, that's going to have more and more appeal as people start freezing this winter because of the sanctions and because uh, Russia has uh, uh, has really the ability to make people have to duck under five or six blankets to stay warm when their gas deliveries are curtailed. So. Uh, This is going to burgeon, it seems to me. The problem is um, Biden's horizon is November. Okay, Uh, the midterm elections in November. So this whole thing in Ukraine can be considered an existential threat not only to the Russians but to the Democratic Party, to Joe Biden and to those foolish advisors that he has. In other words, everything will be leading up in November, and there's no way that he can sort of back down, at least if he listens to his politicians. So when his intelligence advisor, April Haynes says, you know, this is gonna be really, really bad. It's gonna just slog on. You're right, Joe, Until it, uh, uh, we we do it until, it's, until we're finished. Well, you're not gonna be finished in November. And the question is whether, Democratic politicians are so cynical as to make sure it does continue until November at least so they can appear beyond reproach, standing up for the Ukrainians who are the ones bearing the brunt of
0: all this. Turkey renews threat to veto Sweden and Finland's NATO bids. Turkey is threatening to veto NATO's membership for Sweden and Finland, even as they are moving quickly to get this whole thing solidified. Your thoughts on uh, where is Erdogan now with all of this? He made this threat before he relented. Now it seems to be in its final stages. And, and again, he's saying not so fast.
6: Yeah. yeah well, he's a master at uh, blackmail, if you know, I could call it that. Um, when he first announced that he was unalterably opposed to Finland and Sweden uh, entering NATO, I wrote quickly that, well, yeah, I don't know. It looks like uh, the smart money would say that he'll cave in for the right price. Mm -hmm. And he did. Now the price has to be paid. And the question is whether the Finns and the Swedes are going to do what uh, Erdogan uh, insisted they do with uh, some of these Kurds some of whom have been elevated to responsible positions. Are they going to give them all up and send them to Turkey to be dealt with uh, in black, black sites, or are they going to not be able to do that? Erdogan right now says, well, they got to follow through on all this, but I would say again, the smart money would be that they'll be able to pay some sort of other price, and Erdogan will not stand in the way Uh, And this is going to take some time, take a lot of months. So for a while, uh, everyone can be sure that NATO will stay at number 30. Okay, 30 members of NATO. Recall when when the U.S. Secretary of State, James Baker, promised not to move NATO one inch east of Germany. Mm -hmm. That was in 1990. There were only 16 members of NATO at that time. So... It's doubled in size, and they're all, so far, <laughs> they're all well to the east of the German border. You know, if you were a Russian, would you feel a little bit deceived about that? I had yeah, I had one of Gorbachev's advisors look me straight in the eye. I asked him, why didn't you get that written down? He looked me straight in, yeah, and he says, because we trusted you.
0: Yeah. I think also Fatula Gulan needs to be a little uh, uncomfortable in his compound in Pennsylvania. Uh, Ray McGovern, as always, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Consortium News has a piece, Hold the Fireworks from the Supreme Court's ruling on Roe v. Wade to the persecution of whistleblowers this July 4th exploded with reasons not to celebrate. The author of this piece can't celebrate a country this year where the highest court in the land sets society back a century with ruling so out of the mainstream of society that they hearken back to the Dred Scott decision. He's a former CIA counterterrorism officer, former senior investigator with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He became the sixth whistleblower indicted by the Obama administration under the Espionage Act, a law designed to punish spies. He served 23 months in prison as a result of his attempts to oppose the Bush administration's torture program. And he's the co-host of Sputnik's Political Misfits and the author of this piece, John Kiriakou. As always, John, welcome back. Thanks so much, gentlemen. Good to be with you. You write, Newspapers on the morning of July 4th told the story of a 10-year-old pregnant rape victim who, thanks to the Supreme Court's ruling overturning Roe, was denied an abortion and told she would have to carry her rapist baby to term. You can't celebrate a country this year where police try to pull over a driver for a traffic offense. He leads them on a chase, and then they shoot him 60 times, not six. And you can't celebrate a country this year where whistleblowers who tell the public about the crimes that the government is committing in their name find themselves in prison suffering under conditions one would expect in a banana republic, a tin horn dictatorship or a Soviet gulag. Very strong language, John Kiriakou.
7: I almost feel bad about it, but you know, as as the day went on, July fourth, I just got angrier and angrier with the state of our country. You know, you, you watch the the fireworks displays and these demonstrations of patriotism every every uh, year on July fourth, and we we like to think that this is a a God-given paradise, Uh, we have a divinely inspired constitution, none of that is true. Look at the problems that we have in this country, Uh, and and I tried to list just a handful of them in this piece. Uh, We have uh, a lot of cleaning up to do in America before we celebrate ourselves and congratulate ourselves as the greatest country in the world.
2: You know, John, I got to connect it to this because I've picked up a lot from this whole Ukraine thing, and that is when I look. At America today, literally supporting people who are goose stepping around with Nazi tattoos all over them, right? A country in Ukraine that outlawed the political opposition, that closed all of the opposition um, radio stations and media outlets. When I look at all of that, and the government of the United States says, that's an independent sovereign nation, democracy, we have to support them, I can't help but think. That's what they want to do to us. If it looks good over there, it must look good to them. So it's the old thing of I put I put it like this: If my mother were a crack addict, would I be doing her a favor to bring her crack, or would I be better off to criticize her and say, "Mom, you gotta let the, you gotta put the pipe down"? And that's when what you're saying, you're just saying, "Mom, put the pipe down." And people want to get mad at you for saying that, John. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. We're a nation of of
7: hypocrites. We're a nation whose whose policy it is uh, to be one of hypocrisy. Um, you know, it, it started for me with Citizens United, where the Supreme hmm. Court told us that corporations are people too, and uh, that enabled the Republicans to to raise money like they've never raised money before. And what did the Democrats do? They just continued playing the same game, same game as the Republicans. I have found there to be very little difference between the Democratic and Republican Party. And then we got into this Supreme Court term where, where we've got Clarence Thomas telling us that he wants to take a second look at some of the things that have become the basis of our society, for example, um, the earlier the court 's earlier overturning of of a Texas law that that banned sodomy right well, sodomy is sodomy is something that pretty much every single American does, at least under the legal definition of sodomy. Are we going to all go to prison now because uh, because Clarence Thomas doesn't like what we do behind closed doors and the privacy of our own homes. What about Loving versus Virginia? Should we expect that to be overturned too? Or what about gay marriage? That's got to be next on the Republicans agenda. And then in the meantime, in the background, we've got the police shooting this driver in, in Akron, Ohio. 60 times. They fired 90 shots at him Mm -hmm. and hit him 60 times. I read this morning in the Washington Post that when they took his dead body to the hospital, he was handcuffed. They handcuffed him after they killed him. Have we learned nothing from George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Tamir Rice and so many other people who have been victims of police violence. And we could go on and on. We could talk about this kind of thing all night long. But the country, it seems to me, has lost its way. This is not a partisan issue. The Democrats are just as guilty as the Republicans are. I talk in the piece about a friend of mine, a friend of ours, Matthew Ho, who— uh, is the Green Party's uh, candidate for the United States Senate in North Carolina. He's been thrown off the ballot. And it's not the Republicans that threw him off the ballot, it was the Democrats. Certainly the Republicans do the same thing to the Libertarian Party. But I would call that fascism, not democracy.
0: You uh, were a former CIA counterterrorism officer, a former senior investigator with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. People, I think, in reading this piece, need to pay particular attention to what you, John Kiriyaku, are writing. And I'll say it in this context: the first time I had Ray McGovern on my uh, other show, this was gosh, now twenty years ago, damn near. Uh, I made reference. I was talking about uh, Dick Cheney, and I made reference to Dick Cheney uh, being a uh, a neocon, and Ray was very clear. Wilmer, he is not a neocon. He is not a conservative. I am a conservative. He has nothing to do with conservatism. He's a fascist. And I said, wow, coming from Ray McGovern and his background, that's quite a statement. Wow. I would think that you would not be too far afield from that assessment. I. Oh, my gosh, yes.
7: Yes, I think you're exactly right, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. You know, when I was arrested after blowing the whistle on the CIA's torture program, my then-wife said to me, something that has stuck in my mind all these years, she said, well, at least now you don't have to hide your politics. And the thing is about my politics is my politics have never changed. Mm -hmm. I've been very consistent through my adult life. I believe in the things that I think the founding fathers wanted us to believe in. And that was respect for the individual, respect for human rights and civil rights and civil liberties, right? That's what we've been fighting for, for all these generations, for centuries. It's the country that's changed. It's the government that's changed. You look at some of these videos that you can find on YouTube, for example— of ronald reagan and george hw bush debating um uh immigration Mm -hmm. and they're to the left of any democrat today any democratic elected official today their position you look back at the 1960s and the democrats are all to the right of the democrats or the the mainstream democratic party Of the 1960s you know look back at uh at eugene mccarthy for example or or robert kennedy or even hubert humphrey who Mm -hmm. was conservative for his time every democrat is to the right of those men so it's the country that's changed not me
0: and when you talk about the democrats we can say thank you bill clinton and the democratic leadership council you are absolutely right Yep. The other thing, and
2: when you're talking about whistleblowers, you're talking about Assange, talking about the 4th of July, and people tend to, you know, talk about the Constitution and the rights enshrined in the Constitution. It is particularly pertinent to the issue of Julian Assange because that cuts to the core of the Constitution. One of the problems that we're having right now, one of the reasons, I believe, that we're losing the amount of whatever you want to call freedom, liberty, whatever term you want to use uh, uh, that we have, independence as, as people. It, to me, it's because of our media has become wholly, you know, nabbed, grabbed and, and, and owned by the national security state and the, gov- the government. That's right. And the Assange case is at the center of it because it's saying the media can report on things that the government is doing in his case Illegal. And now if things change where the media cannot report on illegalities of the government, then you are in a totalitarian state. It's game over, John.
7: Yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. You know, it it should have been game over when when news became public that the U.S. government had had laid out a plan to either kidnap or to kill Julian Assange in Mm -hmm. the streets of London in broad daylight. Um. It's just so patently illegal. It's just so wrong. I would even go so far as to say that it's un-American. And nobody so much has raised an eyebrow about it. We don't even know if, in the event that he's extradited to the United States to, uh, to face these specious Espionage Act uh, charges, if he'll be able to use that in his own defense. It's like a normal thing to have the, the uh, U.S. government plotting to murder you in the street.
0: I want to switch gears. We've got about two minutes. Close Guantanamo. Republican senator defends Guantanamo Bay Prison as absolutely Mm -hmm. vital institution. James Inhofe's comments come as congressional Democrats are reviving efforts to close Guantanamo. John Kiriakou.
7: Yeah, Guantanamo should never have been opened in the first place. It's it's unconstitutional, certainly. And uh, we've got something like 34 people still there. My position has been very... Uh, uh, clear on this from the very beginning. If these guys at Guantanamo are as bad as we want the American people to think that they are, then charge them with a crime, put them on trial and allow them to face their accusers in a court of law. There's no reason to have an extrajudicial facility offshore someplace when we have people who are far more dangerous in American penitentiaries, all around the country. This is is a stain on our country to have a facility such as Guantanamo. It should have never been opened in the first place.
0: As we get out, do you think the actions by the Democrats are really window dressing, knowing that they can't get Gitmo closed?
7: Absolutely, yes. There's no possible way they can close Gitmo. They would need 60 votes in the Senate. They're not going to come anywhere near. They may not even get 50. Uh, They're doing this just to because they're failing at everything else and they need something to make them look good.
0: And to close Gitmo would actually be an admission to your initial point on the whole subject. It never should have been opened in the first place. we got 30 seconds.
7: Never should have been opened. Yeah, um, the, the whole purpose of opening Gitmo was to have some place to hold people for two or three weeks while we decided which federal district in which to try them, Boston, New York, or Washington. And uh, it became a monster.
2: And now you can't try them because they were tortured. And so everything would be thrown out, which should, in fact, be the case with Julian Assange, because they spied on his lawyers. There's no court in the world that should be acceptable in. You're exactly right.
0: In fact, U.S. settles lawsuit accusing uh, abused men of detained after 9-11. We'll have to talk about that another time. John Kiriakou, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.